Hi everyone, welcome back to Impressionable with me, Becky Lee. This week I have on the amazing Laura Dempsey and we are talking all things climate change and if climate change can be tackled under capitalism. So, small questions here today. I hope you enjoy the episode and as always, I'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, actually no, in two weeks time now, in two weeks time. See you in two weeks. Bye. Welcome to Impressionable. This is the podcast in which we try and figure out the ways in which we've been shaped by the world and the legacies we'd like to leave behind. This week, I'm joined by Laura Dempsey. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, have you had a good Monday? Uh, yeah, it's been nice, actually. Um, been up to lots of kind of different projects. Um, been co-working with a friend, had a nice walk in the sun. So all together, pretty good for January. Oh, nice. I know. I, I find the weather's like unusually mild for January at this time of year. Yes, it is, um, which is both kind of equally nice and equally terrifying. So the other day I was in the park and I saw some blossom, which is, is not right in January. So I know we'll talk a bit more about that later. But that was one yeah. of those moments of joy and horror. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And as like a bit of a sun worshipper, it's also one of those things where I'm like, oh, God, this is so bittersweet. Yeah, absolutely. So for those that don't know you, why don't you give a bit of an intro to who you are and what you get up to? Uh, So I'm Laura and I am the founder of a social enterprise called Volunteers for Future. And um, I'll talk a bit more about the organisation later, but essentially we're all about providing access to really good climate and conservation education for young people. Um, And in terms of what I get up to, all sorts of different things. Um, So I do quite a lot of volunteering myself um I also am very very passionate about climate change and animal rights so do a little bit of activism um but also very fond of crisps and wine so there are my other hobbies that I get up to so slightly less pure tasks oh I mean who isn't a fan of crisps and wine do you have a favorite wine um (laughs) white (laughs) you're a white I I think like white isn't like an all-time thing but then I really enjoy a red if I'm in the mood a red red. in the winter yeah it's a nice Sunday drink but no I'm definitely not a wine connoisseur just um yeah a bit a big fan and definitely not doing dry January so yeah no no I I have my birthday in January so just out of the question oh when when's your birthday the 19th oh okay well that's good it's sort of getting a bit more into February that's good yeah exactly um so obviously the podcast is called impressionable and the first question that I ask everyone is what's something that's made an impression on you recently um, so a really exciting kind of um, fact I heard about an event I was at just before Christmas is the amazing properties of elephants to capture carbon. And the fact that um, elephants have this amazing ability, they are ecosystem engineers. So they basically walk through the forest, these are forest elephants, they munch and scrunch through the forest and they knock down all the smaller trees that are all competing for light and space. And then as a result, the larger trees get a lot more light and air and space and are able to be super carbon capturers. And I I was looking at a stat today in preparation for this, but the value of carbon capture of a single elephant is worth $1.75 million. 
it is phenomenal. And the fact that we have gone from something like, how many elephants were there previously? So 100 years ago, we had 10 million elephants roaming the world. And now we've got less than 500,000. And you just think, you know, whether you are into animal welfare or not, that is a phenomenal amount of carbon capturers that we've wiped off the planet. And it's just that big reminder of that very fragile kind of balance and and need for, for biodiversity. Like every every element of flora and fauna is part of a big jigsaw puzzle. And the more we keep wiping out as a human race being the dominant species, the more impact we're effectively creating for ourselves. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting, exciting facts to share with young people, but it's also that good reminder of we have to look after every aspect of our planet. Yeah, 100%. And it reminds me of how there's like a perfect symbiosis of like how the environment regulates itself without us. Like, yeah. who knew that yeah, is such absolutely. an interesting stat? Yeah, it's the same with whales. I don't have the whale facts as well, but these huge, yeah. big mammals and the role that they play. And I think that often gets overlooked. But the fact is, it is it is all like, it's like a big kind of game of Jenga or something. Everything is so carefully balanced. And if you yank a piece out, it has a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're going to be talking loads about that today. Um, but I wanted you to go into a little bit more depth, if you can, about Volunteers for Future and kind of what was the origin and what's your goals? Yeah. So um, Volunteers for Future is effectively a collective of incredible volunteers, um, conservation and climate groups, uh, parents and teachers. And we're all working together to help young people have much better access to climate and conservation education. Um, and the reason being is we want to give them a sense of hope and give them a sense of agency and, you know, much more of a voice in their futures, because currently, which is something we, we talked about recently, um, that the curriculum is, is not hitting the mark. There's, there's a little bit around climate change in terms of geography and, and some of the sciences. But actually, climate change is a cross-curriculum issue. It's affecting um, us as consumers, the jobs we take on, where our money is, how we vote, our health, our well-being. And the current UK kind of curriculum is woefully underserving young people. And so armed with amazing organisations and and volunteers, we're trying to address that and work really closely with teachers um, and yeah, it's getting young people to feel much more hopeful and much more engaged and understanding the world around them and how we how we can all adapt and how they can be part of that. Um, so, yes, that's the kind of background. Um, I don't jump. I, I can mention a little bit about the kind of backstory if that would be useful. Yeah, of course. So I, I guess there's um, a couple of things at play. When I was very young, um, I was really interested in animal welfare, loved animals, um, was really interested in the environment. Um, and I had this little green team club, this little organisation that I'd set up that would campaign and lobby at a local level. It was a very small scale and very ineffective in Ealing. Um, when I was about nine years old and I, I cared about these issues so much but actually by the time I got to secondary school it just wasn't cool it wasn't in it wasn't taught in any of our lessons and that part of me just sort of left to something that was so important to me as a kid and I, I guess one of the things I reflect upon is if it had been part of the curriculum if it had been part of our education system you know I was at school 30 odd years ago we'd be living in a very different planet right now and and, and that's how powerful education can be um, and the kind of the later later one in life, it was something that I was always interested in, but 
wasn't involved in and sort of constantly felt guilty, guilty. And then a range of things started to happen. So the school climate strikes, which you'll remember, you know, really kind of kicked off with Greta Thunberg around 2019. Millions and millions of young people striking all over the world and that collective movement of young people, along with things like the rise of Extinction Rebellion, like people actively, you know, volunteering and taking action from quite a diverse range of people to the rise of public consciousness and awareness of these issues. And I kind of had this moment of thinking, well, I, I've got a bit of career experience behind me and I've got these things I really care about. So how can I bring the two together? And through doing lots of volunteering myself and networking and talking to lots of people is where I spotted this gap where basically young people want to learn about this. Teachers want to teach it. Conservation and climate organisations have got great content, but somehow there's this mismatch of here's the people that want it and here's the people able to offer it. And that's where the kind of volunteer piece came in as they could really connect the two together. And through the power of volunteering is how we can how we can help get this education working in partnership with teachers um, to really support young people. Yeah, exactly. And also it's the people that are going to be affected most by the effects of climate change are the people that, you know, are younger in school right now and I think the the face of climate change activism is kind of that generation yeah. is the generation that they know that their planet might be inhabitable in you know fifty years time. I think we're heading for I think we're trying we're exceeding one point five degrees warming, which we're already seeing the effects of. Um, but how how are young people that you speak to? How are they conceptualizing it at the moment? Yeah, it's a complete range. So one of the things that really took me by surprise, because um, we initially started working in primary schools, is how much they know already. They, they don't have a choice. This isn't something that's a hobby or interest. They are absolutely swamped with this information day in and day out. So in terms of how they're conceptualising it, it really ranges from I'm very interested, engaged to the core of my being, to I'm terrified and suffering a lot of anxiety, to I, I have to be completely ambivalent towards this because I've got so much else going on in my life. So there's such a range. But but what really struck me is is you walk into a class and there's eight-year-olds telling you more things about climate change and the impacts and the causes that anyone in my peer group could could kind of rustle up. And and you know that that for me is both, yeah, again scary but really exciting is they are engaging in this. But the range is is huge. But the fact is, they, they all know it's happening. Um, it is scary. And they all know that it's impacting their futures. So it's there's a bit of talk about we don't want to bring this into the classroom or the lesson because we don't want to scare young people. But the ship sailed. They're scared. They know about it already, as we all do. So our choice now is to give them responsible, kind of accurate information and help them feel part of the change. Definitely. And I feel like there's an incredible sense of irony that people that care the most and like you know so emotive about it are the ones that can't what an eight-year-old gonna be able to do you know even though they're the ones that are really you know ones that have been affected and want to change things so you know what you were saying about you know that eco-anxiety that a lot of young people have and I've certainly had it before is the picture like completely bleak like how do you manage to balance the teaching in a way that's realistic but optimistic yeah so um the first thing is to help them to understand why it's happening. So what are the causes? 
um, and understand um, a little bit around as part of that what can we change as a result so it doesn't feel impossible so that that's part of it is to explain what's the science behind it so they've got the facts the world's not going to end tomorrow we've got a bit longer on this planet um, but actually helping to understand some of the facts helping them to understand the causes helping them to understand some of the wider solutions and then helping them to understand what they can do about it and what they can do about it typically um you know we started off by talking to children about individual actions and they are important but where has a greater power is acting as a community as a team working together you've seen how powerful young people are when they got together and they're millions to strike um, you know across the world and it's really encouraging young people to do that to really get together in teams in groups um, and to have the kind of greatest change so that that's part of it and one of the biggest things with with anxiety in any kind of sense is, is taking action is one of the biggest things that can help you. So when you feel powerless and out of control and something's happening to you, your anxiety gets worse. When you see that actually you can be part of it and it can have a multitude of positive impacts, not just the thing you're trying to change, that that's, I think, the, the thing that, make, that makes the biggest difference. Definitely. I think when when I was in the depths of climate despair, I was, you know, vegan and like trying to encourage everyone to eat less meat. And I still think that's important. And I'm sure we'll go more into the debate on that individualism versus collectivism action. And um, but we've spoken in the past about like potential new technologies and reasons to be optimistic about the future. Based on your work, is there anything that you can signpost that could get us excited? Yeah, so the the couple of aspects um, I've been learning a bit more about recently are nature-based solutions. So, you know, we, we often think about trees, um, plant more trees. And actually, it's not always great to plant more trees, particularly in some areas that they don't actually help to capture as much carbon as people think. Um, and it takes a long time for a tree to capture carbon. So when when you have these offsetting, and I'd love to use quotation marks here, <laughs> offsetting offers by companies um, that say, buy this flight, but you can offset by planting a tree. It's nonsense. It's going to take decades for that tree to start sequestering carbon in the way that we need it to. Um, but trees are important. They are they are important from a, a number of um, a number of aspects. But it's also really exciting developments. So things like sea kelp farms, like sea kelp, it has the most amazing potential to store carbon. But also it provides an amazing rich food source. It grows really quickly, um, and it also helps create a really lovely kind of natural ecosystem um, for the wildlife in the sea as well. So that that's one aspect I think is so exciting, and I'm like, let's let's just get some more sea kelp farms. That's going to help hugely, and that's really fun and interesting to kind of talk to to children about. Um, but then there's other technologies that are looking at how can fuel be more um, uh, be more environmentally friendly. So it's things like technologies around um, hydrogen, which is actually generated. You know, it's a liquid form of fuel that's generated through um, renewable energy. And it's actually thinking about how can we create um, lots and lots of sources of renewable energy. So I think that's the other aspect. And then it's um, other things are, I don't know, like 
there are millions of homes in Bangladesh that are on a grid with solar power now, and they are selling the solar power back to each other. So they've not only created a way to kind of heat and light their homes sustainably, but they've also created a, an income source. And they're doing that in the millions. And that's when I think, guys, come on, we can do this. <laughs> These are communities that don't have access to a lot of resource. And, and if they can manage it, I, I think we all can. Um, but I think the, you know, I could rattle off lots of technologies. I, I think the key thing to understand is that we have all the answers. We've got the solutions, but we, we have to. And actually, commercially, they're starting to make more sense. Like fossil fuels, it, it's a dying out resource. It, it, the value of it is going down and down and down. More companies are investing in renewable energy. So I think it's really key that we start to look at not only um just developing technology in isolation, but look at the systems, look at the policies, look at the funding. Um, the more that we can increase consumer power, the more that we can penalise companies that are using fossil fuels, the more that we can make it more accessible to have renewable energy sources to you know, really stop to reduce our addiction to fossil fuels, the better. So I think the technologies are great and there's loads and that's definitely something to be um, optimistic about, but it's all part of a kind of wider system change that we need. I've always been cynical that the only reason that companies would become, um, I guess, more green is because of the money aspect. Like, I couldn't imagine that there'd be a bigger driver than that. Um, and you touched a little earlier on the idea of carbon offsetting. Um, and I feel like that's an example of greenwashing. And for those people listening that don't really know what greenwashing is, could you talk a bit about how companies might trick us into thinking that they're doing a good thing? Yeah, it, so carbon offsetting is, um, yeah, it's a very divisive term now. So basically a company will say, I'm going to produce this much carbon in, in, in you know, the products, the services, the, the manufacturing techniques that we use, but don't worry, you can offset it. And that offsetting, whether it's planting trees, for example, all that's doing is enabling them to carry on doing what they're doing at the moment. And what we really need them to do is change the systems, the processes, the technologies that they're using. We need to reduce the consumption. We need, we need to stop thinking we can cancel one out with the other. What we need to do is basically stop and reshape how we're doing things. And, and, and that's a big thing. You, you see it a lot. You know, I, I was lucky enough to go to COP um, back in Glasgow a couple of years ago. And it was amazing to go into the green zone and see all these companies and they'd put a few pot plants up. They changed their logo green. You know, they, they had some pictures of wind farms and it was like, guys, hang on. You are major, major contributors to this just because you've turned your font green like, is literal greenwashing. It doesn't mean you're doing a good thing. And so I, I think I just, you know, for, for us as consumers, just exercise some caution about what you're spending your money on. Um, I'm not saying you have to boycott all companies, but hold them to account a bit more. Um, and if actually companies are purporting to do something, ask to see their impact report, ask to see the stats and the facts. Look at how they've reduced, um, you know, some of their more polluting um, uh, processes, as, as well as how many hours of, you know, volunteer time do their staff do? And how much money have they given out to charitable causes? Actually challenge them to say, well, what good are you actually doing in terms of your your core business offer, not the, the, the fluff or the important fluff around the edges? Yeah, um, wasn't the most recent COP sponsored by Coca-Cola? Yes, yes, so, yes. It was, yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And, 
you know, Coca-Cola are just, they have this whole thing around how much their bottles get recycled. And it's like, just just stop using the bottles, like just stop producing billions and billions of these bottles that last for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like, yeah. And again, we talked about it, like the whole idea of um, an individual carbon footprint was a concept created by fossil fuel companies to divert attention away and to help us all think, well, if I make these changes, you know, that's what I need to do as a responsible citizen. And it's actually, no, we need to be changing the the kind of practices of the bigger companies and corporations. Yeah, 100%. It shifts the onus onto the individual. And then, you know, the structural things that are causing the biggest impacts, you know, as you said, the blame is completely diverted. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we all have responsibility. So it's not just about um, talking about what the government should do or, or corporations. It is us as well, but it's a combined force. Yeah, exactly. So more on that then, as individuals and kind of as collectives, what are, the, what are some of the most effective things that we can do to help the environment? Yeah, so um, as you've mentioned already, one of the biggest things is, is where your money is. So where your pensions are invested, I don't think people realise how much of their pension is invested in the fossil fuel industry. And not only is that incredibly damaging, it's very short term, it's profiting the few, it's not helping anyone in the longer term. But financially, it doesn't even make sense anymore. It's a depleting resource. So one of the first things to do is think about who you bank with and where your pension is. And you don't necessarily have to take all your money out and completely change where your pension is, but you should be writing to your pension company and saying, I'd love to know where my money's invested and have a bit more choice and say. Um, And then where you bank with, you know, there are so many big high street banks that are much more responsible in terms of where you're investing your money. So I'm not a financial advisor, but very happy to kind of share some links with you to share in the podcast of of how people can look to switch their accounts. Um, And it's also thinking about your consumer power, like whether you're vegan or not. Veganism has a powerful commercial effect now. You're walking to the supermarket aisles and there's, there's, you know, there there is whole sections now. It used to be a funny shelf in the corner, but now there's whole (laughs) sections. You know, veganism, there's a commercial side to it and it has a positive impact on the planet. So that really does show that where you spend your money can have a kind of ripple effect. Um, And the third part is really um, that collective piece around whether you join a group, a committee, a volunteer club, whatever, that the the main thing we need to be doing is talking about this more regularly, normalising it. Um, So actually, you know, it is is very exciting and interesting. There's loads of great developments and there is a lot of optimism. So I'd also say engage a little bit, like listen to a short podcast, uh, listen to a radio show, watch a short documentary, talk to your friends and family about it. I think just starting to normalise this rather than a weird thing happening over there to being something that we frankly all need to embrace because it's happening whether we like it or not. I I think it's probably the best way to go. And then, of course, there's a number of collective and and smaller actions that you can take. But but they'd be the biggest is thinking about where your money is, how you're spending it. Um, And then also, um, yeah, talking to people, engaging a little bit because it's not all doom and gloom, but it does need more people paying attention. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, And I wanted to signpost quickly, like the kind of disproportionate nature that climate change will affect people, because obviously climate change isn't going to affect everyone in the same way. And it's often those that contribute the least to climate change end up going to be the ones that 
are going to suffer the most. Um, and then there's also a sense of irony and the privilege of being able to be sustainable, you know, like not a lot of maybe people don't have the ability to, you know, switch products or search the supermarket to make that change. Um, yeah, it's just incredibly difficult and tricky. Yeah. Um, so there's the, you know, the, 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 the macro higher level discussion is around global north versus global south. Mm. So us in the global north. Um, you know, we contribute to over half of emissions, uh, you know, a relatively small number of countries contribute to over half of the emissions. And you think about, you know, that the amount of carbon that we as individuals here produce versus someone in, in, in Malawi is it, huge. So the, the fact is that um, that already it's not fair. And that's why you'll have read about in the latest COP, they talk about financially compensating countries. We, we have to. We have disproportionately used up way more of the Earth's resources. Um, so that's number one. And number two, the impact of climate change is hitting them far worse than us. Like look at Pakistan at the moment, for example. So we have to recognise that there, there are different levels of contributors and there are different levels of people that, that, are, um, that are harmed by this and, and it's not fair and we need to compensate them for that as well as recognising when we are making changes, we need to level the playing field a little bit when we're doing that. Um, the, the other aspect is around things like the affordability of this. So yeah, it's really easy for me to go and buy you know, an expensive vegan burger, like I have choice, you know, I'm in a privileged position. But when people are thinking about, you know, getting their meals from the food bank, they don't have choices that their life is full of enough challenges. And when you layer on climate change on top of that, it's completely overwhelming and disproportionate to what else is going on in their life. So it's about making sure that this is accessible and it's fair. And um, you're not talking about climate change in isolation. You're, you're talking about it in terms of you know, the policies that we're making, they, they need to look at. So the, the fuel crisis at the moment, that's a perfect example where the cost of fuel has gone up. Gone up. People can't afford to heat their homes and, and, and we're burning so much fossil fuels at the moment. We're really damaging the planet. But the fact is, actually, if we created better solutions for them to heat their homes, it didn't mean they'd have to burn fossil fuels. That reduced our dependency on fossil fuels. You're immediately starting to see there's lots of cross-mutual benefits that you can gain. So I think that's key. And then, you know, there's other examples. Like um, there's an amazing campaign by a group of young black and brown women called Choked Up that you may have heard about. Um, and that's where they are, they, you know, they were spurred into action through the, the death of a school friend um, who died because of pollution. Mm -hmm. And then they started to look at where communities of black and brown people live in London. And disproportionately, they're in the areas that have got much greater area, levels of pollution. And the more affordable areas are, you know, a little bit further out, have access to more green spaces. You know, that's a really simple example where you just look at London and you think, wow, that's really unfair. So you, there's this real intersectionality between, you know, in the environmental side and equality, and you can't talk about them separately. You have to talk about them together. Um, we've recently partnered up with an amazing organisation called the UK Youth Climate Coalition, and this is a group of young campaigners, um, and they have basically set up this organisation that's been running for a number of years. It's designed by young people for young people. And we're recruiting a team of young volunteers to go into schools and talk to young people about climate justice, because whilst you might get a little bit of climate change education, we're not talking about the fact it isn't fair and it needs to be. 
and it doesn't proportionally affect people in the same ways and we don't contribute in the same way. So that's a really key part of the education. So we're bringing in really passionate climate activists who are only a few years older than the young people they're talking to to actually start to normalise this discussion as well and and help um, people to understand a little bit more about it. That's amazing. Is that something that everyone can get involved with if they're interested? Yeah, so if we've got any teachers listening, um, we're looking to host the workshops in secondary schools. Um, If anyone is interested in volunteering and being one of our climate justice volunteers, because it's a youth role, we're looking for volunteers under 30. Um, But we have a range of kind of other projects and roles for everyone that I can talk a bit more about towards the end of the podcast. Of course, perfect. I wanted to um, also actually interest in what you said. It circled back right to the beginning about how climate change intersects with all levels of the curriculum. Because as you said, back in the day, my understanding of climate change was that, you know, one area of like size of a football pitch was getting cut down every second. Um, but that was mentioned in geography or science once. Whereas now it could be in, you know, your politics lessons, your history lessons, your English lessons, the way that climate change is written about. There's so much powerful resources out there um, for young people. And I wanted to also talk to you about, like, is there anything that's surprising you while undertaking the project or about learning about climate change? Um, the, the, the thing that surprised me a lot, which I talked about, you know, just before, is, is how much young people already know that really shocked and surprised me. Um, You can't give them a ton of new facts. Um, You can maybe give them some alternative facts and a bit more information, a bit more flavour, but but they know so much. They have so much information that they have to bear the weight of that we never had when we were younger. And and, and partly that's to do with society's changing, but it's also access that they have to to content and information via social media, for example. Um, the, the other thing that, that really surprised me um, when I moved more into this space is the fact we know what to do. I'd assumed we were still figuring it out and it was going to require lots of individuals changing how they live. And then I was like, whoa, no, hang on a minute. We know what the science is. We've got already, I heard a fact the other day, we've already got half the technology we need and the other half is kind of in prototype development. So we know what we need to create. We, we, we understand the science. There's a, enough billions of pounds and dollars swilling around. We just need to pivot and invest and support some of these kind of new technologies and, and new ways of working. So that was the most surprising thing. I was like, why, why aren't we doing it? Because now it makes commercial sense and people don't have to sacrifice how they live. But we, we're not doing it. And that, that perplexes me all the time. That's why I like to talk about it with as many people as possible to just try and get them excited and engaged. Of course. Do you, do you have an answer as to if we have all the solutions, why aren't they being implemented? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. But it's <laughs> not, it's not, like, it's not, it's not an easy one to solve. But we, we live in a capitalist system whereby we measure the success of a, of a country and a company and an individual by how much they make, how much they earn, how much they own. So that's the biggest contributor. It's what the Industrial Revolution gave us. You know, we, we are amazing as a species, but we have, we have half killed the planet and ourselves in, in that pursuit of gaining more. And, and that's the problem. It's a system change we need to make. So you can sit there and get overwhelmed and think, right, forget it, it's too big. 
or you can um, slowly bit by bit chip away at it and get two other people to chip away at it and and that's where I think that power of collectivism comes in I, I don't think we should just accept the status quo I think we can demand more and demand better but more in terms of better standards better health better well-being um, rather than more stuff in our homes for example and you know it's, it's stuff like like the fashion industry, like that, that again was another big shock. I had no idea how damaging the fashion industry was. And I was someone that used to buy a lot of clothes. I'd buy an outfit for a night out, you know, and now I look back and think, wow, that is, you know, that's not great because actually the, the amount of pollution that those, those textiles cause and the, 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 you know, further down the chain and in, in the kind of the, um, the textile production chain, you think about the the living standards of some of the workers so we can get this four pound top it's phenomenal but anyway that's a whole other topic but yeah the, the problem is the system that we live in and the the culture that we have around consumerism so they're the they're the two biggest things that we have to create a shift of but we've done it we've proven we've done it in the past and in the not so distant past we totally changed everything because of covid and and that was one of the biggest points where I was like, hang on a minute, we can completely change overnight because we're worried about our health right now. We should also be worried about our health in a couple of years and make the changes we need to because of climate change, because that, that is a far bigger kind of threat, really, to the human race. Oh, 100 percent. I am. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware of um, an academic called Jason Hickel, but I went through a phase, love his stuff, and he's all about degrowth and how you basically, we can't save the planet under capitalism or especially not under neoliberalism, which obviously is about growth and make more and produce more. And this idea of, um, I can't remember the term, but like the products are often made to have an expiry date so that people will buy more. Things are, as you were mentioning with fast fashion, things are much less likely to be made to last today because they want people to revisit, repurchase, grow the pie, grow the pie, grow the pie. And we live on a planet with finite resources. So how are we supposed to have infinite growth? Um, and I wanted to ask you a big question, actually. And you kind of hinted at your answer, but is it possible to solve climate change with capitalism? Uh, <laughs> probably not, because we it's the consumerist nature behind it and the distribution of wealth and power and so I'm not an economist so I'm not an expert but I I would look at the system and think it's structured to benefit the few not the many and any any system that does that there's going to be inequality and unfairness so no but capitalism serves a purpose and has a place, but not to the extent where we have a handful of billionaires that have more wealth than millions of people combined. That, I think, is where capitalism has really kind of burst through and, and, and gone very, very wrong. We, we shouldn't have billionaires. It's a nonsense. Um, you know, there will always be a distribution, unfair distribution of wealth, but to the extent it, it's got to now, no. <laughs> I completely agree with you. But um, obviously, you gave me hope when you said about how we kind of changed overnight for COVID, but I'm very cynical about the state of the world. And I I think it would take a lot mm. for the West to kind of give up a lot of their... It would require people giving up power and their resources. And mm. I just... Uh, 
they need a big incentive to do it. But they're the people that aren't going to be as affected as much, mm. you know? The people that are already in poverty yeah, in the global absolutely. south are the ones who have been demanding yeah. change for decades. They've seen the effects yeah. decades yeah. ago. Um, I feel like yeah. because now it's starting to affect the West a lot more, that's why we've started to listen. Whereas, um, yeah, we should have started change, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, you talk to some leaders in the Global South and, and you're exactly right. They've been lobbying about this for years. They've known about it. They've been telling. We, we knew about this decades ago, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, these reports started coming out. And, and that, that, that does make you feel a bit like, you know, that, that's a long time for us to have known about this and not do anything about it. But, but you hit the nail on the head. We have to find the way that it benefits people and how it brings more to their life. Um, how it enhances their well-being, their, their, their living standards. And that's when you can start to see some of the changes. And that's why there have been so many innovations within local community groups. They've been forced to make this change. And by doing so, they've had a huge, huge impact. They've been able to mobilise a whole collective of people that come from very different kind of you know aspects um, because they've been forced into it. And, and, and gradually you know, we're going to be doing the same because you've just seen how much the weather's changed in the last Mm -hmm. couple of years, how much we've had to adapt how we live, that that's only going to get worse. And so I think, unfortunately, we're going to move to that place where we are all adapting and making changes. But the, the, so that's not a shall we, shan't we, we have to, we've got no choice. But it's how quick we go and, and how much we can do it in a way that benefits a lot more people. I think that's the key. Um, rather than you know developing this whole other way of producing energy where again you have billionaires Mm. at the top and it's disproportionate and it causes unintended consequences somewhere else yeah yeah. 100% and I often think about like it's our own livelihoods that are at stake you know it's the human race that's at stake and obviously it's a lot of animals but after we're gone the planet's going to self-break it's going to carry on it's it's going to find (laughs) symbiosis again and it's going to be gorgeous you know um so it's going to be here long after us and it's going to, you know, balance itself out without us. But right now, like, we're just jeopardised. We're literally just screwing ourselves over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's something to kind of, but my, you know, a lot of my friends are parents and I'm like, guys, <laughs> this, is, this is why you should care because it's going to impact your children. And, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm already thinking it's going to be a much tougher kind of however many decades I've left on the planet never mind the younger generations and, and kind of their children. 100%. Um, I don't want to leave on too much of a cynical note. Um, and as you said, there's a lot of things to be optimistic about, especially, you know, if we engage in collective action and um, and all the new technologies that are doing their service to us in their own ways. Um, but I also wanted to ask, what impression would you like to leave on the world? I think, like, for me it's the impression I want to leave is is I I love volunteering I I love how it brings people together how it changes you know the lives of others but also your own but it's that that what's at that root of volunteering that that working together giving something back and I I think for me it's as someone that created or or supported um you know these opportunities for people to to get together and support each other for the greater good so whether that's by having a conversation, whether that's by running a school workshop, whether that's by supporting another cause or protesting, 
the, the impression I'd like to leave is really that I, I help to be part of kind of bringing that together because that, that power is a bit cheesy, but that power of people is phenomenal. You know, when you, you know yourself, like when you get together with others and you work as a team and, and you have a positive impact, that makes you feel amazing and, and it creates lots and lots of great benefits for everyone. So I, I think that's probably the key thing for me is someone that kind of enabled a little bit of that to happen would be, I'd kind of think there, that's my not job done, but I'd, I'd kind of feel proud then. Well, you absolutely should be. I think what you're doing is amazing. And yeah, I definitely want to get involved. And if other people want to get involved, what would you like to direct them to? Or what would you like to signpost? Yeah, so one of the things which which covers loads of what we talked about today is this amazing opportunity called the Young Green Britain Challenge. And it's part of an amazing organisation called the Green Britain Foundation that's headed up um, by a fantastic um, guy called Dale Vince. And he has a number of kind of initiatives and programmes. But he is really passionate about um, helping the next generation to understand climate change and the solutions to tackle this. So um, he, as part of um, a whole collective um, group of organisations, uh, which we're part of, um, they've created this, this Young Green Britain Challenge, and it's helping young people to be innovators, to be designers, to be creators, and it's helping them to actually understand what is the impact of climate change in their local area, what are the causes, what are the effects, and how can you actually solve and provide the solutions to that. And what we're looking for is for mentors to come along and support and nurture and um, help to um, positively kind of, you know, work with young people to create these these great initiatives, campaigns and projects. So we would love if anyone's interested in the discussion we've been having today and would love to know more and would love to do a little bit of mentoring. We would be delighted to talk to them. And again, I can kind of send you some details. Yes, please. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? So we're on all popular social media channels and then we have a website as well. So we're on volunteersforfuture.org um, and then if you just search for Volunteers for Future, you'll, you'll find us quite quickly across all the social media platforms. And again, I'll send you some links. Yeah, perfect. It's amazing because I think, as you said, like I think giving back to the community and being part of something really important and special um, that also helps the planet. What more could you want? That's Everyone needs to get involved. Yeah, but maybe Becky, if you want to come and mentor with us, I'd love to have you in the team. So I, just to put you on the spot I now. I will be sending you an email, don't you worry. <laughs> Laura, right. thank you so, so much for chatting thank with you. today. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I have been, I still am, Becky Lee. And thank you again to Laura for joining me. Everything that we've spoken about will be included in the show notes. And I hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you can give it five stars and tell people about it and share where you like to share things because that'd be great. Okie dokie. Thank you so much. And I'll see you in two weeks time. Bye.